Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibilities. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock and yes, I told you that the Naked Scientist is joining us next week, Thursday, 9am to 10am for a live show. There are 40 double tickets up for grabs, so make sure you enter to experience the Naked Scientist live in action at the 702 Studios in Santon. And uh, for more information, just go onto our website www.702.co.za Chris, good morning. Hello. Lovely to have you with us. But next week you are coming through not on your own. The other colleagues are coming through as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm dragging along a couple of sidekicks. Uh, ben, whom you've met before, yes. is coming. And uh, Ginny, who's a lady who joined us about six months ago, is going to come along too. And we're, we're going to do some some stage acts and some science uh, on stage and blow a few things up, usual stuff. Okay, lovely. Let's start with this question from Daryl. Uh, Daryl wants to know, with over 3,000 satellites hovering above the Earth, why don't they collide into each other? Okay. That's a very good question. Thanks, Daryl. And the answer is that when they are deployed in space, they're deployed into a specific orbit. Some satellites are in what we call a geosynchronous orbit, and this is about 36,000-ish kilometres away from the Earth. And at that position, the satellites take the same amount of time to go around the Earth as the Earth takes to turn. And so relative to the Earth's surface, they stay in exactly the same place. But the point is they are deployed at a very specific speed, um, velocity and trajectory. And this means that because there's nothing speeding them up or slowing them down, then they don't run into each other. Enormous care is taken to make sure that they don't do that anyway because you're talking about bits of kit that cost millions and if one does run into another one, it's not just going to damage the one it runs into. Bits will break off or fragment from the pair of them and those bits will be moving incredibly quickly and they can then move and hit other satellites and do irreparable damage because it's not trivial to just go up there and repair stuff. So this is done very carefully. Satellites in other orbits include those which are in polar orbits. They, they may be closer into the Earth's surface. And in those orbits, they, they go from the North Pole round to the South Pole. They're often a bit closer in. But again, care is taken to make sure that they're not going to run into the path of another satellite. And the point to bear in mind is in space, apart from satellites which are very close in and brushing the outer vestiges of the Earth's atmosphere, there's very little to, to slow a satellite down. So they're not really changing their velocity very much. So once they've been deployed, as long as you've got them in the right place, they're not going to change their position relative to other satellites. So everything should remain well unless something upsets the apple cart. 
All right. And then I have an SMS here, uh, Chris. Somebody wants to know, why is it not possible to tell from a scan uh, if a baby is an albino? Okay, well, when we scan during pregnancy, this is usually done via ultrasound scanning. And the reason we use ultrasound is this is regarded as very safe. It's just sound waves which go into the tissue and they bounce off the interface, in other words, where one bit of tissue meets some other substance, usually water. And the sound waves reflect back, rather like you shouting and getting an echo back, and the machine can detect those echoes and it can use the echoes and the position they're coming from and the intensity of the echo if it does it many millions of times a second to work out what the surface contour of what it's looking at must be and a computer assembles all of those echoes into a picture so that's a very safe way of scanning if you want to scan a baby using x-rays there's a big danger because x-rays can ionize tissue and ionizing radiation can break the bonds in dna and that can cause genetic damage and that may harm the baby so we we try not to do x-ray imaging mm-hmm. but with a, with a, that sort of scan neither of them can tell you anything about the color of a baby or what's going on biochemically in the baby because they're just looking at the gross structure of the baby if you want to know about the baby's genetic structure mm-hmm. because albinism is caused by a defect in a gene which causes the color pigment to be produced in our tissues then you actually need a sample of the baby's tissue and you can do that in two ways one is you can do what's called an amniocentesis test and this is where from about 15 weeks of pregnancy you can thread a needle into the bag of fluid around the baby the amniotic sac and because there are some some cells from the baby drifting around in that fluid if a small sample of the fluid is taken off it will have some of the baby cells in it and they can then be analyzed genetically and you can look for the genes that are linked to albinism the other way to do this is that a bit earlier in pregnancy from about 12 weeks or so you can actually stick the needle not into the sac around the baby but into the placenta which is the extension of the baby from the umbilical cord which plugs it onto the wall of the womb the uterus and that tissue is made by the baby and so if you take a little piece of that you've again got cells in the baby and you can analyze those biochemically or genetically so they can tell you something about the genetic makeup of the baby mm. that ultrasound and x-ray scans can't all right let's go straight to the lines then and is it ronnie in seapoint hi there ronnie hello uh, uh really how are you fine thank you Good. I've got a question for the naked scientist. The equinox was supposed to be yesterday. The day was supposed to be equal to the night in length. Uh, the day yesterday, according to the Cape Times, was about um, eight or nine minutes longer than the night. Today, again, it's about five minutes longer. And today is already uh, a day later. But why is this? Why is the newspaper, and last year was the same, they gave... Um, they showed that the day was longer than the night on the equinox in March. Um, is there a problem? Has the equinox moved? Or are the guys getting their sunset and sunrise times wrong? Okay, there are lots of bright people who know the answers to questions like this. So if I get this wrong, mm-hmm. then please phone in and correct me. Um, what I think may be going on here is that the Earth's... or, um, or Let me try that again. The the Earth is not on a nice circle around the sun. It is going round in an elliptical shape. 
orbits are ellipses, in other words, a bit like an egg shape, rather than going around in a nice, smooth, circular wheel-shaped trajectory. And this means that although you can say the uh, there will be a period when the, the dawn and the night time and all this kind of thing will, will line up precisely, when the Earth is going around on the long side of the ellipse, then it's a bit like having to slip the gears in a, in a gearbox a bit, um, because the Earth has got to turn around a little bit, but it's not actually going around in its circle around the sun as much as, as it would do normally because of the shape of the ellipse. And this means that those day, um, morning and nighttime times will slide a little bit. And I think that's the reason. But as I say, if I've got that wrong, because I'm, I'm not absolutely sure, please do tell me. All right, then, our lines are open for you. Give us a call, 021-446-0567, John in Santon. Hi. Yeah, good day. I'd like to ask a question of Chris. When you fire a rifle bullet in the air, it goes up and it comes down at the same velocity. And it's a known fact that sometimes a person can be killed with a bullet coming down. Therefore, when we see, like, terrorist people in Libya with hundreds of people around and they're firing machine gun bullets in the air, why don't we see lots of dead people on the ground? As the bullet comes down, okay? Yep. So it, it does sound rather strange to think that that it could be true, but it is true that when the bullet leaves the gun, it has a certain amount of momentum given by m, its mass times v, its velocity. This will carry the bullet to a certain height in the sky because its kinetic energy, which is a half mv squared will be converted into gravitational potential energy because the bullet is doing work against gravity, trying to accelerate it downwards, so it will go up to a height in the air where all of its kinetic energy has become potential energy. It will then be accelerated back towards the ground by the gravitational field of the Earth, and the, the gravitational potential energy will be converted back into kinetic energy. Now, there are going to be some losses because there's a bit of air resistance on the way up and there's going to be some air resistance on the way down, but the bullet will end up falling pretty fast when it's on its way back down again and potentially sufficiently fast to kill somebody. And, in fact, there are people killed every year by people firing guns in the air. There mm. was, however, a study done on this. I mean, it's done for television because the... The programme was Mythbusters, which you can watch on satellite television and a couple of guys from the States. And I think they found that with bullets fired straight up and straight down, what tended to happen is the bullets adopted a sort of tumbling trajectory. They wouldn't move smoothly through the air. And this led to increased air resistance and slowed the bullet down below the point at which it would likely be lethal. But they did find if the bullet was fired in a smooth arc, away from the ground, up, and then came down again in a smooth arc, the bullet retained its nice streamlined trajectory through the air and did travel very fast on the way down as, as well as on the way up, and under those circumstances could kill somebody. So I think the answer to the question is that when the bullet goes straight up out of the gun into the air and back down again, it loses sufficient speed owing to air resistance but if fired at about the right angle, a smooth arc upwards and then back down, it could potentially cause deaths. And I think deaths have been recorded mm. in some countries from people doing precisely this. Our lines are open for you. The Naked Scientist is here as we strip science down to its base essentials. Give us a call on 021-446-0567 or 011-883-0702. 12 minutes to 10 o'clock. Let's go straight to the lines. I suspect we've had this one before, but take hey, why not? Benjamin in Linksfield. Hi. Hi. I just want to know, in genetic has technology and research reached the point such that you can artificially create or copy someone's DNA in a lab? Okay. Thanks. 
What a fantastic question. And the answer is up to a point. So what scientists have been able to do so far is to take the genetic message for a virus, in this case they did it for polio virus, and they, they built the virus just from the recorded sequence on a computer um, by building lots of tiny or short sequences of DNA called oligonucleotides and stitching them together pretty painstakingly to rebuild the entire genome of the virus. Now, DNA is at the moment quite expensive to make little sequences of it, but it would be possible if you had enough money, enough time and enough machines to make lots of tiny sequences of DNA, maybe 20 or 30 genetic letters long, and stick them together like that. And in the same way that they did it for a polio virus, you could do this for a human. But at the moment, we're not at the stage where we can make huge amounts of DNA that can be easily stuck together because the human genetic code has got three billion genetic letters in it. So it's a pretty extensive mm. um, story, if you like. And it would take a very long time to print that story using our present technology. But at the rate at which things are changing in the future, probably nice. not because people are thinking of using DNA as um, a way of storing information. Uh, almost like the hard disk on your computer. There was, they've been in the last about three or four months, several, well, back until last August actually, there have been several papers, big papers in, in important science journals, where people have developed systems where they can take information like computer data and turn it into a DNA code, put it into DNA, and then read the DNA to get the computer code back and, and get the program that they'd originally stored as DNA running on the computer again, proving that it works. And a guy called um, Professor Goldman from just outside Cambridge published another paper fairly recently where they put the works of Shakespeare into DNA and then decoded them back out of DNA and back onto their computer as the works of Shakespeare again to prove that you can do this. But the works of Shakespeare are still much smaller than the recipe book for a human. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Very fascinating question and answer indeed. Let's go to uh, Ricky in Santon. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to find out, uh, when, when, how come glue never sticks on the container? Like whether it's glass or tin, it never, it never, it never sticks on, onto the container. Mm, another fantastic question. Usually this occurs because the glue uh, has, to, has to have either an interaction with another chemical in order to put the glue into an active state or that the glue does not bind well to the container that contains it for obvious reasons and it's not till it comes out and goes onto a more porous surface that it can interact. So what is a glue? Well, if you take a really simple, say, paper glue, starch, in fact, is, is what it is. If you look at what you put your wallpaper up with, you're just using starch like flour. And the reason this works is that starch molecules are long and bendy and stringy and contain branches in them, rather like tree branches. And when you paint that onto the wall, then it digs those branches into all of the little nooks and crannies. And this means that if you've got a nook on the wall and a cranny on the wallpaper, then one threads its way into the other and the glue, when it dries, leaves this rigid branch structure of starch between the two surfaces holding them together. So that's pretty simple, but it's also easy to get rid of. You just make it wet and it lubricates the starch coming out of the surface again so it's not a brilliant permanent bond. A different way to do it is to actually have a chemical reaction and if you've used epoxy glues and brand name Araldite um, is, is one of them, this uses a chemical reaction and so what you do is you have what's called a monomer 
which is little tiny units or molecules which are not in a big, long, complicated branching pattern, and an, a hardener, which is usually a chemical that causes something called a free radical reaction to occur, and that causes the monomers to all link together to make a polymer. But they only do that when the two substances get together. So you have the monomer quite happily in one tube and the hardener in another tube, but it's not till you uh, put the two together that you get the chemical reaction that turns the monomer to link it all up into the polymer, and the polymer then does effectively what the starch is doing. It sticks all the wiggly ends into all of the nooks and crannies and, and roughness on the surface. And then when the chemical reaction has gone completely off, in other words, it's completely finished, you've got a very hard, insoluble polymer, not like the starch, which you can dissolve, and that's why it then is very, very difficult to undo. Thank you very much. And um, that was Ricky in Sentin, I think. Is it Al- Al- Alwyn? Alwyn in Droidiport. Good morning. Good morning. Mm. Um, I wonder if the naked scientists can tell me, with all the billions of litres of oil being pulled out of the earth, what happens with the space where the oil's been pulled out of? Uh, yeah, another lovely question. Oh, you've got some great ones this morning. <laughs> so it's tempting to think that when we take this oil out of the ground, and we're taking a lot of oil out of the ground, that it must leave a massive space like an ocean uh, that's been emptied underground. But this isn't actually true because oil does not form in huge, great, open pockets underground. If you were to go underground where an oil or a gas well is located, uh, what a geologist would point out to you is that the surface is just porous rock. It's rather like coral. So there are lots of tiny spaces in the rock and the oil is in the spaces in the rock and those spaces can all be connected together. So it's a bit like if you look down the middle of a long bone and you see the bone marrow with all these little cavities. The rock is porous, those cavities are full of oil and when we drill into an oil well, what we're doing is going through a layer of impervious rock which is stopping the oil rising out of that porous rock and once your drill is is in there you can begin to draw the oil out initially it comes out under its own pressure because the pressure is very high but but then once the pressure drops off a bit you then pump usually what they call mud but some kind of water or something that won't mix with the oil down into the well which goes underneath the oil and then pushes it out and sometimes you have to give it a bit of help um and by pushing that fluid in you put the pressure up even more and you can you can crack open some of these porous rocks to help the oil come through and that's sort of the basis of fracking actually that's basically how Mm. fracking works as well but when you've finished taking the oil away what you're left with is the same porous rock but now you've filled it with something like water and uh, that means that you've still filled all the spaces it's just not full of oil anymore I have an SMS here from Ethan. Ethan says, I'm eight years old and would like to know why you can't tickle yourself. Now, that that particular question has been the subject of a lot of scientific research, so it's really insightful and well done, Ethan. Now, what we think is going on here is that there is a region of the brain which is important for working out what we need to pay attention to. And in order to avoid us getting distracted by things that we don't need to be distracted by. In other words, we want to notice things around us that are coming to us from outside, that are important. You want to notice there's a car coming, so you get out of the way. Mm. You want to notice that uh, something's about to fall on the floor, so you catch it. You don't, on the other hand, want to necessarily be aware of your jumper that you're wearing or your trousers or the seat you're sitting on. You want to suppress that internal information. So there's a part of the brain which knows what information is coming in from outside and what information it expects is being produced inside and it subtracts 
the information coming in from inside away from what's presented to your consciousness. Now, because you know you're about to be tickled, because you're doing it, that signal, the tickle stimulus, when it comes in, the brain just subtracts it away from other sensations coming in and you don't feel tickled. But when someone else tickles you, you don't know exactly what's going to happen when, so your brain can't subtract the tickle signal, so it's excruciating. There we go, Ethan. Thank you very much. And guess what, Ethan? You can actually see the Naked Scientist live if you, your mummy, your daddy, or caregiver uh, goes onto our website, www.702.co.za. Who knows? Maybe you can be part of our studio audience on the 28th of March. Chris, we are so looking forward to that. Thanks indeed. I'm so excited. It's going to be so cool. I'll see you next week. Cheers. That's Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. And uh, our conversations with him are always available as podcasts. Now, here's how the system works. You just go on to the website you click on my face and then you can see all our contributors they've got their own separate pages on the website and then you can download uh, the very latest uh, podcasts and enjoy thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.